Good morning. Let's uh, begin with prayer. Ask God's blessing upon teaching and hearing of His word. Our dear God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that both of us Seven churches. 
single has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who has killed among you, Satan was. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the so that they might eat food, sacrifice to so also you have some who holds in his teaching the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone, a new name written on the stone, that no one knows. Chapter 1. He sees it. The Son of Man does not allow any of us to rise. And because he does not allow the same sword that he brings against his enemies on the last day, he will bring against his congregation. Let me repeat that. The same sword that the Son of Man brings against his enemies on the last day, he will bring against his congregation. Now this, these letters, messages, or oracles to the churches, they all follow the same path. Um, there's a description of the Son of Man, there's commendation to the church and rebuke, and some warnings, and then finally there's a promise to be one to part. And so, Basically, that's the outline that you have. You can see it in book and I can take notes. So, first of all, we want to look at the description of the Son of Man. And here it's very, very short, very sweet. It says, the one who has a sharp double-edged sword. Now, this figure or image of the sharp double-edged sword occurs many times in Revelation. The first time is in chapter 1, where John sees a vision of the risen and exalted Christ. And it says about him that John saw this one, and he had a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now here in the verse 12, it talks about the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. In verse 16, though, it mentions... The sword of, I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And then twice in chapter 19, where God moves ahead to the last day, Christ returns, he mentions the sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and he mentions that twice in Revelation 19. And so here we have the mouth, which is the organ of speech, and we have a sharp, double-edged sword, which is an instrument of warfare, an instrument of death. And so you put those two images together, and what you have is that Jesus is the one who has the right, the authority, the power to pronounce sentence on evildoers. He has the one, he's the one who is able to pronounce condemnation. That's what it means to have a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It means he can condemn to death, and not just physical death, but the second death. 
which we read about toward the end Now, you might perhaps be bothered. You might be bothered by the idea of judgment. You might just be bothered in particular by the idea of judgment. Yeah, at the same time, we 
that's the description of the Son of Man, one with a double-edged sword. He is the one who has the power of the Son of Man. And so next there's the commendation to the church, and very simply is this. And a lot of these messages to the church, commendation, I understand. I'm there, I see what's happening. So he says, I know that you live in a hard place, and I know that you live in a hard time. So he, he says to them, you live where Satan dwells. Now, Pergamum, uh, it was quite the city. Uh, outside of the city, there was, uh, I think the city was partially under the well, was this hill that was about 800 to 1,000 feet high. And on the top of the hill were uh, all of these temples. And especially there's a great altar to Zeus there. And uh, there were temples to uh, Zeus, to Athene, to Dionysus, and Asclepius. Uh, now those four gods, there were temples to those four gods there in Pergamum. In addition, Pergamum was the first church, first city in Asia that was allowed to build a temple to a living emperor, in this case, Caesar Augustus, the one who was emperor when Jesus was born. Uh, Augustus, or Octavius, was allowed a temple in his honor to be built in the city of Pergamum. And so, this is the kind of place where they live. And he said, I know where you live. That, that next slide. So, this picture here was taken in Berlin. You're wondering why do we have a picture of Berlin here? This is the great altar of Zeus. This is not the temple. This is the great altar of Zeus. And this altar is huge. It's, uh, I think I remember reading that it was about 35 meters wide, 35 meters deep, and the stairs in the middle there were like 20 meters wide. This was a big altar. And it's, you know, the archaeologists put it all they gathered up all the pieces, took it to Brooklyn and they had a museum there. Okay. This is a great altar of Zeus. Maybe this is what he's talking about. I know we need well, we're Satan, Satan's throne. And it's very possible that John, Son of Man, is referring to this as the throne of Satan. So they lived in a hard place, in a hard time. And Jesus says, I know. Uh, and he says, I know that you hold fast to my name and you did not deny your faith in me. Even when Antipas, who was one of your own, was killed with martyrs, this probably wasn't part of an official organized persecution or the was more. Probably a one-time thing where crowd went after and killed him. Kind of like what happened with Stephen. And so the Lord's Commendation to the church is, I know. I know that you live in tough times and our Lord does see that. He sees what we go through. And it's good to know. 
also the rebuke. He says, I have this against you. And what he had against them was that they tolerated false teachers. People like Balaam and the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were mentioned in the letter to the we don't know much about them. Only they're only mentioned in Revelation. Just a few clues about them. But we do know more about Balaam. What, what can we say about Balaam? Uh, Balaam was an interesting. Uh, that's pretty much what we. We can read his story in Numbers. Uh, I think starting at chapter twenty-two, going through. Uh, Balaam was a prophet of the Lord. How he came to that, we don't know. He lived in the Middle East. He was the only character in the Bible ever to meet one of the creatures of Narnia. That's for a different time, uh, different story. Uh, but what happened was that um, Balak, who was the king of Moab, Midian, saw that Israel was coming out of Egypt and he was here to that. So he wanted to hire Balaam. Balak hired Balaam to come to curse Israel. And Balaam came, and although he was a prophet of the Lord, he still liked money. He liked a lot. And so he came and he said, I can only I can only say what the Lord tells me to say. Four times, Balak takes Balaam out to curse Israel. And four times, instead of cursing Israel, Balaam blesses Israel. And finally, Balak says, forget about it, get out of here, I don't want you to have curse Israel, do not give me money. Well, Balaam says, no, I really want that. So, I can't curse Israel Spirit of God won't let me do that. But here's what I'll do. And so he went to Balak and he says, You know, I can't curse Israel, but I can get, I can show you how to get Israel to curse itself. So what happened was that somehow or another, Midianite women came to the camp of Israel and used to bunch men and and the whole congregation, I should say the whole congregation, but a good part of the congregation uh, started uh, getting involved in uh, idolatrous feasts and sexual immorality. Uh, this all came through Balaam's advice to get Israel to curse itself. And there was a big play what John is saying here is that you've got people in the church in Pergamum just like Balaam. They are teaching my people to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And these false teachers were probably saying things like, listen, they've stuck an idol, and everybody knows that idols don't really exist, so it doesn't matter if you eat the meat off the and then there were other groups who were a little bit shadier in the church, even in the early church, that said, no, what is important is the spiritual, and the material doesn't matter. The spiritual is good. The, the physical or the material, it's either bad or inconsequential, but it doesn't matter what you do. You can go out and uh, have 
that's where you want it. And probably some of the people in Pergamum were practicing what he saying. Now you might be thinking to yourself, hmm, I have never in my life even made sacrifice. And I don't ever see that happening. But you know what? I don't think the Son of Man is God. the Son of Man wants us to do is to ask ourselves, what are the 21st century sacrifices? That's what he wants us to do. And you know, it wasn't so much the eating of the meat that was a problem. I mean, Paul dealt with this in 1 Corinthians, where he said, you know, if, if it's in the marketplace and it's for sale, go ahead and buy it and eat it. Unless somebody points it out to you that this has been offered to idols, and don't do it for the sake of love, for the sake of time. Um, so it wasn't so much the eating of the meat that was a problem. What was a problem was the participation in a group that was believing or practicing something that was totally contrary to the kingship of Jesus. And that would be the 21st century equivalent eating meat. It would be participating, giving yourself to any group um, that, uh, in which its beliefs or practices puts itself above the rule of Jesus and above the kingship of Jesus. It could be heritage, it could be your plan, it could be a fraternity, or a lodge, or an association, or something. It could be something like, you couldn't belong to a, to a swingers club and not fall guilty of this sort of thing here. Any association with a group that leaps or practices puts itself above the rule of Also comes down to things like cause. And let me, I want to read from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. He talks about and, and if you're not familiar with the Screwtape Letters, it's, it's a fictional thing. It's about a senior devil writing letters to a junior tempter, giving, giving him pointers on how to tempt human beings, or in this case, one specific human being. Uh, the man to whom this junior time. Uh, and so he, he talks about shall we get him involved in patriotism or passive, which would be more harmful to a person. And so he said this whatever he adopts, your main task would be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause. He has that in In which Christianity is valued chiefly 
because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of British war effort or pacifism. The attitude which you want to guard against is that in which the temporal affairs, the affairs of this life, are treated primarily as material or obedience. Once you have made the world an end, faith a means, you have almost won your man, and it makes very little difference what kind of world again he is pursuing. Provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers, and sacraments, and charity, he is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. Could show you a pretty cage for perfection and humble. Even a good cause, even a good cause, can become something that's rarer than the kingship of Jesus. That's what that's the need. Participation in yourself for the group puts itself above. move on from there to the commands and the warning. There's just one command. Be tempted. Be tempted. Now the, the deeper issue, the deeper issue, and this is the issue that the Son of Man is really getting at. The deeper issue was their corporate failure. Their corporate failure. So what we have here is a persistence of the second person singular. Now that's not some gnarly grammatical something that we need to pay attention to. All of these messages or oracles in chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation were written to the angel of the church. To the angel of the church. And wherever the word you is used in these letters, it's always a singular you. It's never the plural you. Never the plural you. It's always the singular you. So, for example, uh, I know word you, singular. One, one person, not a group. I know word you well. You hold fast my name, singular. Um, but I have a few things against you, singular, one person. You, again, singular, have some there who hold to the teaching of uh, Balaam. Uh, verse 15, so also you, second person, therefore repent, that verb repent is also in the second person, singular. If not, I will come to you, second person, singular, one. Here's where he makes a change. I will come to you. 
you finger and war against them plural. This is what I call the persistence of a second person feeling. And what the Son of Man is saying here is that the deeper problem is that you have as a church, as a corporate entity, and that's why he uses this I can use the second person singular. He's talking to the church as a corporate unit, as one, as a whole. He says, you, as the group, you have a problem in that you tolerate, you allow these false teachers to be there. That's the deeper issue, that they, as a group, allow this to go on. There is corporate guilt here. It's, we, we, we saw it in, in, in Midian, when, when the, the Midianite women came in, what happened? That brought up guilt upon the whole nation. And the plague hit the nation. We, we see that a little bit later with, after the Israel has crossed over the Jordan, they, they come and they start the conquest of land with Achan. Achan sinned. And who paid for it? Well, first of all, the whole nation paid for it. And then secondly, not only Achan, but his family paid for it. When Jesus talked to the leaders of his day, he said, he kept talking about this generation. And he's talking about his contemporaries. And he says, the blood of all the prophets from Abel, Abel was in the first book of the Hebrew Old Testament, to Zechariah, who is in the last book of the all the blood from Abel to Zechariah will come upon this generation, his contemporaries. And he's talking about corporate guilt. And that was the deeper issue there, that the church as a whole allowed these false teachers to be in their, in their midst. So he tells the group to repent. He says, and if you don't repent, I will come against you, the group, I'm going to bring the sword of my mouth against them. So the tolerance is corporate, but the practice is individual. And it's important to make that distinction. But the, the deeper issue here, with what he's calling out, is that corporate problem. That's why we have church discipline. That's why sometimes we talk about it in our time. We talk about church Because it's a means of keeping the congregation pure and ridding the congregation, ridding the corporate body of the guilt that some would bring into it. Some church members here were in danger of judgment. Jesus is very, very clear about that. I will make war with them. Let's look finally at the promise to the one who comes. He says a number of things here. He says, first of all, I'm going to give him some of the hidden manna. We're not really sure what that means. There are a lot of suggestions. But you know the manna, the bread that came from heaven in the Old Testament, it was a shadow or a picture of Christ. And Christ is reality. And so he's saying, I'm going to give you myself. To you who overcome, I will give you myself. Nothing greater but in giving him, but giving us himself, he says even more. He says, I will give to him a white stone. 
There's an interesting thing here. Um, it's not the not the typical word for stone or rock. No, typical word for
happy with me, no one else knows. So Jesus brings, Jesus brings against this church that same sword that he's going to use against the enemy that we We need to be aware of that point. We need to repent if there is sin in the mind. We need to make sure that as a corporate whole, we are watching faithfully. That's what we call the That's what we Yes, God does work with us in the victory. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.